This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Seth. I'm Koss, and we are very happy to have Alex Kotlowitz here with us today. Kotlowitz has been an author and a journalist for over 40 years. His national bestseller, There Are No Children Here, received the Helen B. Bernstein Award and was adapted as a television movie. Kotlowitz just released his fourth book, An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago, a compelling indictment of a city and nation that has failed their citizens. Kotlowitz's documentary, The Interrupters, premiered in January 2011 and aired as a two-hour special on PBS's Frontline. For the production, Kotlowitz received an Emmy, a Cinema Eye Award, and an Independent Spirit Award. Kotlowitz is a former staff writer at the Wall Street Journal, and his work has been featured in numerous publications ranging from The New Yorker to The Washington Post. An alumni of Wesleyan University, Kotlowitz has been a writer-in-residence at the University of Chicago, a visiting professor at the University of Notre Dame, and a Montgomery Fellow at Dartmouth College. Thank you, Mr. Kotlowitz, for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. We like to begin by asking our guests about a certain inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their professional or personal lives. Um, Would you care to share (laughs) a moment with us? Well, that's a really good question. so, yeah, I mean, actually, if I can go back a long time ago um, when I hired on at the Wall Street Journal, which seemed like an unlikely place for me. I had started at an alternative newspaper in Lansing, Michigan, um, and uh, had worked uh, some with Michael Moore up in Flint, and uh, and I couldn't get a newspaper. I wanted to work at a daily newspaper for the experience. I couldn't get anybody to hire me because I didn't have any experience. It was just kind of catch-22, and the last paper I applied to was the Wall Street Journal which of all places was willing to take a gamble on me. Um, and I just thought, I'm never going to fit in here, you know. And I remember, uh, and I, I don't think I've ever s- uh, told this story before, but I went to a bookstore and brought like 10 books on business reporting because I knew nothing about business. I was just so anxious. Um, and and I just thought this is not going to work. And I ended up going there. I ended up in some ways having, I think, the best job in journalism one could have. Uh, I spent 10 years there, um, and I was able to carve out a niche writing about you know, social issues and urban affairs, the very things I still write about today. And it was a real lesson for me. I mean, I had to do, I was brought in, I had to do some business reporting. I wasn't very good at it and didn't particularly like it. Um, but I, I, in the end, kind of followed my heart and was able to, again, sort of carve out this place for myself at the paper. So... Before you went to the paper, you were interested in writing about social issues, or was that just what was available when you? No, when you I was there? interested. I, you know, what I had been, I, you know, I. So I think of myself as a storyteller, and and I, what I, what I learned that I loved to do when I was working in Michigan, uh, both for this alternative paper and with Michael up in, at the Flint Voice, is um, I love telling stories that hadn't been told before, you know, the stories of people along the margins, because I think that it's there that you can really sort of take measure of how we're, we're doing as a society. Um, and there was something incredibly exhilarating about it, incredibly invigorating. Um, and plus the fact is I was spending time in these communities that I had no reason to spend time in. So it wasn't only inner-city neighborhoods. You know, I spent a lot of time covering... Uh, uh, the decline of uh, of organized labor in Michigan. Um, the, I spent time in Flint when Flint was at its lowest point um, in the in the nineteen early nineteen eighties. So um, so I knew this is what I wanted to do, and and then I took this job at the Journal, and I wondered whether am I just making this compromise that is going to really both frustrate me and and bring me far afield. Uh, so. 
as a child, did you always know that journalism was something that you wanted to do, or how did you come to that realization? Yeah, no, I wanted to be a bio. I wanted to be a zoologist when I was growing up, uh, and uh, then I went to college and took organic chemistry and realized I was not cut out <laughs> for the sciences. Uh, and so, um, and I was politically active in college. You know, I went to a small liberal arts school like Claremont McKenna, and there wasn't there weren't any journalism courses, so it wasn't something on my horizon. In fact, when I left school, I went and worked on a cattle ranch for a year. And I just got very fortunate and in some ways lucky. You know, I saw an ad uh, for this associate editor at the small paper in Michigan, and I went out and interviewed. And that's, um, uh, and so I kind of backed into this accidentally. Now, to be fair, I, I mean, I've got to confess my dad was a writer. He was a novelist, um, and he was a magazine editor as well. So I, in some ways, I come by it honestly, but I think the last thing I wanted to do was to do what my dad was doing. Um, you said earlier you were kind of talking about that you're much more interested in the story. Right. Um, urban life plays such a, a large portion of, of the stories that you yeah. like to tell. What aspects of urban life are particularly rewarding to you or challenging yeah. to you to talk yeah. about? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the, the, for me, the, the two most pressing issues in urban America, they are now and they have been for a long time, is race and class, right? The, I mean, the growing... Uh, and what we're seeing now is this kind of growing inequality in our cities. Um, and I think there's this notion out there in much of America that life is reasonably fair and just, and yet you spend time in some of the communities that I've written about, and you very quickly realize that life is anything but fair or just. And so, you know, in some ways, I end up writing out of a sense of anger. Um, uh, and the challenge for me in the end is when I put pen to paper is to try to put that anger aside as well. Uh, you know, to write with passion and write as dispassionately as I can. So writing about issues of race in, in, uh, in communities that are predominantly African-American, uh, I imagine that you are typically seen as an outsider. So right. how are you able to get individuals who might be initially untrusting of you right. to trust yeah, you and open right, up? Right. No, it's a really good question. And, you know, l let me just say about the nature of what I do, I'm always an outsider, if not by race, by class, by geography, gender, religion, you name it. It's just part and parcel of what one does as a nonfiction writer. Um, and so, as you say, when I go, for example, when I began working on There Are No Children Here, you know, which was about a couple of boys growing up in a public housing project, I mean, I was really an outsider. I mean, first of all, I was an outsider by class. You know, this is a, 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 was a desperately poor neighborhood, uh, desperately distressed. And the other part of it was is that there were not many white people there. In fact, the only whites who were there were the police and the teachers who came and went, you know, during the day. Uh, and so for me, I... Uh, there, there are obviously disadvantages to being an outsider because I'm not familiar with the community, with maybe the, the sort of culture of that community, the history of that community, and so it's incumbent on me to try to understand it as best I can. But there are also some advantages to being an outsider. You know, you go, I go into a place like public housing back in the 1980s, and I'm just mortified. I just, I mean, I felt, I mean, I felt a sense of indignant fury, but I also felt this incredible sense of shame, like, how could I not know? And so one of the things as an outsider is sometimes you start asking questions that people have stopped asking out of resignation, out of frustration. Um, and, and you see things that people have stopped seeing. You hear things people have stopped hearing. And f as you say, the, the real challenge is how do you get people to trust you, to share their stories and share it in this very public way. And I think all I can do on my end is to be as straight and honest with people about what my intentions are. Um, 
and to try to walk them through as best I can about why I'm wanting to do it. And, you know, the other part of it is that people, you know, they ask in very different ways, but what's in it for me? And so to walk through why someone might want to share their story in this public way. You know, it could be because they want to right or wrong. It could be because because uh, they recognize, and this was the case with the mother of the two boys I wrote about in my first book, because she recognized if I wrote about her boys in this neighborhood that maybe it might make a difference in the lives of her community, or maybe it's because nobody's come around and ever asked them about their lives. Given that the, the people that you're working with know that their story might end up in a book right. or that a lot of people might be reading it, do you worry that they might spin their stories a little differently or behave a little differently to come off a certain way? No, listen, the bottom line is I think all of us want to be sort of portrayed in the best light possible, and that's just human nature. And, you know, part of my job as a, as a, a, a reporter, as a nonfiction writer, is I, you know, I spend weeks, months, sometimes years with the people I'm writing about. Um, and it's, you know, there's no question. And I've, I've done, as you mentioned earlier, I've done film, you know, and it's, it's often what happens, you know, initially is people kind of put on this front, but it's really hard to keep up that act. And in, inevitably people uh, are, are just, are themselves. Um, but it's my job as a reporter to make sure that I get it right, you know. So I'm talking to friends and family members, you know. I mean, you know, if I meet somebody who seems to me to be really aloof, I've got to make sure that I'm not misinterpreting that and that maybe it's just shyness. Um, uh, and I also tell people that, you know, if somebody's, you know, been involved in criminal activity in the past, that at some point I'm going to have to go get their criminal records. And it's not because I don't trust them, but I just want to make sure I'm accurate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's only human nature to be want to put the best spin yeah. on yourself. Does your do you have like a specific research process as you're as you're going through this, or is it yeah. just kind of you yeah. follow where the story takes? Yeah, I got to say, reporting is so so messy. You know, mm -hmm. every time I start a project, I think, okay, I'm going to be really efficient about this, and uh, and you quick very quickly get knocked off balance. You get disoriented. You know, you. You think you know the story, and in fact, the story is something else. You think you know the person you're writing about, and, and you come to learn that they're much more complicated and rich and fuller than you anticipated. Um, and it's, it's what's exhilarating about what I do and also really challenging. Uh, it's natural as a, as a story writer that you want to focus on the most interesting, the most dramatic moments of a person's life, right. but... I would be worried that, you know, maybe that's not a full depiction of their whole life. There's a lot of, for example, when you were working with prisoners, they, they write about the one of the more interesting or memorable moments in their prison experience. But, you know, a lot of their experience is probably pretty boring. How do you strike a balance between making it interesting to readers but also giving a, that full depiction? Right. Sense? Well, but it, it's interesting that you mentioned the prison essays because I was thinking about that when you asked that question because I think you're right that you're – you're, first of all, two things. One, you go into a community that's not your own, and the thing you're immediately attracted to, you, you guys have probably traveled internationally, all of you, right? So you go into a foreign country, and the first things that strike you are the things that feel unfamiliar, right, that feel exotic. And it's the same when you go into a community that's not your own. That's what you're drawn to. And part of our challenge is to also recognize what we hold, all hold in common. I always remember, and it, this was a really early lesson for me, when I first began There Are No Children Here, I would take the two boys out uh, for pizza after school a couple times a week. And, uh, and the thing that really knocked me off balance in my early weeks there was the violence. I was really unprepared for 
the stories that I heard. And so all I wanted to talk to Lafayette and Farrell about was, you know, who'd been shot and who'd been stabbed since I last saw you. And I remember at one point, Farrell, he was nine years old, he wa wanted to talk about a spelling bee that he was studying for. And I said, I wasn't quite this dismissive, but I basically said, no, 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 I, what I want, you know, I want to hear about the violence. And he was persistent in only the way a nine-year-old kid could be. And I, and I realized that, one, I hadn't been listening particularly well, but you also, I realized, too, that I was kind of neglecting the things we have in common. I loved school when I was growing up, just like Pharaoh. And so I think part of what you, and part of what I try to do in my work is to deal with what feels like the quotidian, what feels like the familiar, as well as the unfamiliar. And it's interesting when you mentioned those prison essays, you know, I worked with these inmates on stories about their prison cells, but in some ways they're kind of really quotidian stories. You know, they're about being a recluse, about having a friendship, about playing the piano. They're actually not, I mean, it's interesting, the inmates, the guys I worked with, most of them wanted to tell the stories of their crime or to argue that they had been wrongfully convicted or to talk about their miserable conditions in prison. And so I had to really push them. And I said, no, I just want you to write about what everyday life is like here in prison. And that's for me, was the power of those essays. Uh, your most recent book is called An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago. And it makes me wonder, how do you tell a story that simultaneously gives a full description of the characters and their Basque stories and their histories <laughs> Um, while also being anchored in a specific place and time. Right, right. So in some ways, being anchored in a specific place and time, I welcome as a writer because, you know, not only is reporting really messy, but the writing process is in some ways even messier. And so if you have clear boundaries, um, and they could be temporal, they could be a character, they could be a place, they could be a combination of those. It really helps you as a storyteller. Um, and so for me, the, one of the things, I mean, I could have written this book about urban violence. I could, first of all, I could have written it in so many other cities, St. Louis, Baltimore, New Orleans, or I could have found a story in New Orleans, and a story in Baltimore, and a story in Chicago. And for me, the fact that they're anchored in a singular place is part of what keeps them cohesive. It's part of what connects them. And so for me, it was a real asset as a reporter and writer to have that. And then I also was really clear that I wanted to take this one summer. And the challenge for that was that I found all these stories that really engaged me, but I couldn't find a way to write about because they didn't take place in the summer. Uh, so much of your writing paints an uncompromisingly grim portrait of Chicago and, and the, the life yeah. there. And <laughs> how do you maintain a positive outlook right, on life? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, let me push back a little bit about that uncompromisingly <laughs> grim portrait of Chicago. I love this city. I, I mean, I've been there. I'm from New York originally, so I'm kind of an accidental Chicago, and I've been there for 40 years. Um, and one of the things I love about the place is its messy vitalities. You know, it's a place of these really vital, distinct neighborhoods. Um, uh, it, there's a, a physical beauty about the place. I mean, it's got more... Uh, uh, um, uh, shoreline than any other city in the country, even more than San Francisco. Um, and it's a city, too, where you can find all the fractures, all the fissures in the American landscape, you know, race, class, the intersection of politics and money, you, you name it. Um, and so I have a real love for that place. Having said that, I think part of loving the place is also being really honest about where we come up short. And our city, like so many other cities, has come up short in so many ways. And so one of the things that I 
of what what I tend to do is to write about those places where this place has come up short. And you know, well, this the other part of it is as well. I'm writing about uh, the violence. You know, the people that I meet, um, despite what they've been through, they're they're. Um, you know, they're all standing erect in this world that's slumping around them, moving forward, and some of them, in fact, moving forward heroically. You touched briefly on it, um, talking about the violence and everything. Has Do you feel that the situation has changed or improved in Chicago since those three decades have passed? Or? Well, certainly since There Are No Children Here has come out, things have changed. I mean, the American Summer, an American Summer just came out this past year, mm-hmm. and we're still really grappling with the violence. You know, there are reasons there are some signs that we're making some progress. And, and I want to be clear that the violence in some ways is only symptomatic. And what it's, you know, that's symptomatic, I mean, the violence in Chicago or St. Louis or Baltimore, New Orleans, I mean, the thing that they all have in common is they happen in communities that are deeply distressed, where that window of opportunity is not only not widened, but it's narrowed. And they also happen in cities that are still deeply segregated. Um, where parts of the city, you know, are, are so isolated from the rest of the metropolis. Um, so we're making some progress. We have a new mayor who I'm, I personally am excited about, who, you know, for the first time has appointed somebody whose sole purpose is to directly deal with the violence. She also gave a very moving and I think necessary talk a couple of weeks ago about grappling with the growing inequity in the in the city. Um, and so... If we can begin to have those conversations, I think uh, I, I think we'll make some progress. I'd be honest. I mean, I think for me, one of the concerns I have now is we're so locked in uh, to Trump's daily hammering on our Democratic House and that small D that I think we're neglecting the cracks in the foundation. And um, and so we've got to be careful not to be consumed by what's going on in Washington. So on that, what do you see as perhaps some of the best solutions for fighting violence, gun violence, gang violence in, in Chicago. Right. So, you know, there's a real debate now in this world about fighting the violence. And there are those who believe that if you want to really grapple with the violence, we've got to find a way to, to rebuild communities um, uh, and to somehow directly confront the continued segregation in our cities. And then there are those who believe that, you know, we can't do anything else until we directly deal with the violence. And so, you know, we've got to provide, you know, like, for example, have street workers go out into these communities, people who have come from these places who can go and try to interrupt, you know, disputes before they erupt into something more, programs that reckons with the trauma of individuals. And I come down somewhere in the middle. I think we need to do both at the same time. And so there are some wonderful programs in the city that are beginning to, one, reckon with the trauma of both individuals and communities. I think something that's been completely neglected. Um, There's an effort to, as I mentioned with the mayor, to try to look for ways to rebuild these communities. Um, I think the thing that we haven't begun to grapple with is, again, the segregation in the city. Uh, Starting to run low on time, so I want to pivot a little bit. Uh, First, the students out there listening to this who might be interested in journalism or perhaps uh, in violence in Chicago and other major cities, uh, what books or articles would you recommend that they read? So, um, you know, there's some nonfiction. I mean, I, I, I love the power. I, to be perfectly frank, first of all, I should say I probably read more fiction than I do nonfiction. Um, 
but um, because it's a real, you know, f- well, I, I read more fiction than nonfiction. But for me, I, there are some nonfiction writers out there that I just so deeply admire. You know, there's there's Catherine Boo, whose book Beyond Behind the Beautiful Forever is about a slum in Mumbai. I think it's just a triumph of of empathy. I think of the work of of Tracy Kidder. Um, I think of. Uh, Tony Lucas's Common Ground, a book written many years ago about the busing crisis in Boston. It was a book that really kind of inspired me to do what I'm doing today. I think of Matt Desmond's Evicted, um, about uh, the proliferation of evictions and how it has such a profound impact on on, uh, distressed communities. Um, there's so much good work out there. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer, I believe really strongly in the kind of what I think of as the bigness of a small story. And so the writers that I tend to be drawn to are, again, people like Kate Boo or Tracy Kidder or Matt Desmond, who also see the power in telling these really deeply intimate and personal stories that shed light on something much larger. Uh, we, we typically like to end with, with this question, which is, uh, how do you define success for yourself and what recommendations would you have to students when trying to come up with a, a definition for themselves? Success for myself. Yeah. Uh, if my jump shot is on, I guess. <laughs> uh, um, I, you know, I, I write um, to be read. And so um, and I don't I'm not so presumptuous to think that my stories are going to change laws or change policy. Um, but I do hope that my stories change the way people, readers, think about themselves and think about others. Um, I think, you know, the kind of the center of the centripetal force of storytelling and community, for that matter, is this kind of notion of empathy, is this a capacity to imagine yourself as someone else. And so if I can get readers to imagine themselves as someone else, as a, a, a kid growing up in the projects, as a young man growing up in a little village community in Chicago as uh, uh, as an as an, a new immigrant uh, in, in you know rural Missouri um, then I feel like I've been successful I mean I write to be read fortunately that's all the time we have for today thank okay. you for joining us mr. Cuthbert. thanks these are great questions guys yeah, really nice. Thanks.